Okay, open your Bibles at Acts chapter 8. I've got a word in my heart this morning just to share with you. Something, we've been going through the story of Acts uh, in the midweek meetings, and we got as far as Philip going down to Samaria. And I saw something during the week, and the Lord began to speak to me about what he's doing here in our midst in this particular season, and what, he's, what he wants to see happen in our lives. And I want to speak about that this morning. So this is Acts, the first eight verses. You know this story very well. And uh, it's the outbreak of a persecution of the church that Saul of Tarsus is involved in. Look at verse 1. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That was Stephen. They just stoned Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they're all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. And Saul began ravishing the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and putting them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. (laughs) I will sing your praises in every season. Amen. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Praise God. Now I read that, and one of the things that jumped out at me is when Saul went looking for the church, where did he go? He didn't go behind the temple curtain. He went into homes. He went into kitchens. He went into bedrooms. That's where he found the church. And then he got the shock of his life for a few weeks later. He's on his way to Damascus. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, Lord, who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And when Saul heard that, it blew his mind. Because it changed the way he was thinking. It changed everything he ever understood about God. Because up to that point, Saul's God was a God who hid himself away from people. Saul's God was a remote God. Saul's God who wouldn't be found dead touching unclean people. Saul's God was a God who hid himself away, you know. Yet that curtain had been torn from top to bottom. They sewed it up again. But it, was, it still had a big tear because God was no longer that God. You see, he had always been the God who was going to make a way for him to be with us, to be with people. And I want to talk to you this morning about that God, the God who gives himself away. You could say the prodigal God, the God who gives himself away. He's so generous. That's who he is. And when we see him for who he really is, everything changes. And God wants this generation to see him as he really is. But that starts with the church, praise God. For the true judgment of God, who he says he is, begins in the house of God. We have to see first. So really, this is this wonderful message that as Saul began to get this revelation that God was with these people, that he'd given his name to those people, that if I touch them, I'm touching him. But this can only mean one thing. God must absolutely love sinful people. And that blew Saul's mind. He didn't know a God like that, a God who absolutely loved people. Praise God. Now, I know that maybe like me over the years, you've struggled sometimes to understand how this can be. How can God be like that? Especially when you read certain passages of Scripture. Sometimes we can 
struggle to reconcile different parts of the Bible together. But Jesus came that our struggle would be over. Grace and peace has appeared that we would see the Father as he really is. And so that's what this scripture shows us. That question Saul asked Jesus, who are you, Lord? Every person in the world today is living by their answer to that question. Do you know that every person in Irish Street this morning has a theology? Every person in this city has a theology. Theology is simply what you believe about God. <laughs> I remember once uh, was an atheist said to a, a, a Christian minister, I, I don't believe in God. And the minister said, well, tell me about the God that you don't believe in, because the chances are I probably don't believe in him either. <laughs> you see, who he really is is the most beautiful. It blinds you. It's almost like, you know, when you're a child, your parents always told you, never look directly in the sun. Why? What happens when you look directly into the sun? <laughs> Why did Saul go blind? He looked directly at the sun. He said, my God, you are so good. He couldn't take it. In the natural, even he went blind. Spiritually, he was just, he was just dumbfounded by what he saw. Praise God. And I think really some people, in fact, multitudes of people today, still believe what Saul of Tarsus believed about God. They believe he's a God who separates himself from sinful people. Maybe from time to time he might hold his nose and draw near. They believe that he is a God who's only found in holy places, like in a church building, but he wouldn't be found in the lives of sinful people. They believe he's a God who's obsessed with himself, protecting his own name, protecting his own holiness, meeting out justice to those who oppose him. Most of all, they believe he's a God who stands apart, waiting for people to clean themselves up a bit more before he'll draw near them. That's what multitudes of people today believe. At a subconscious level, I believe that they believe that repentance must come before grace. I must do something about myself before God can do something for me. Do you hear that? I must do something about myself before God will do something for me. I must repent and then grace will come. You see, they believe that repentance must come before grace comes. Where did they get such an idea? I'm sorry to say they got it from us. That's where they got that idea from. Because that's for generations. That's what the church has preached. Repentance comes before grace. And so if you will first behave, then you can belong. And you know, multitudes of people have tried so hard to behave better. And they have tried so hard to believe more in a God like that. And they have found no power in that gospel. No power to be changed. Because the only love that is powerful enough to change you is the love that's not given to you based on your behavior. The only love that's powerful enough to change your behavior is the love that's not given to you according to your behavior. Praise God. Some people keep trying for years and years. They've persevered to try to change themselves, to try to believe, and they have decided to live with all the self-condemnation and the depression and the guilt that comes with trying and trying and trying. And they decided to stick it out and just live there because they're afraid that if they don't try hard enough, this God will send them to hell. Many other people, though, in your family and my family, in finding no power to change in the gospel that tells you to repent well enough and he will give you grace, they've simply walked away. And they've got on with their lives and left this remote God to his remoteness. But every one of them has walked away with a theology. Every one of them believes something about God. Who are you, Lord? 
That's the question. And you know, God himself is a God who believes. He believes and therefore he speaks. And when he speaks, amazing things happen. Praise God. And what he has declared to us and what he has done is he has declared that he has given us his life and in his presence is fullness of joy. And so to believe this brings a great joy into your life. And I think it's the greatest measure, really, of how much I am believing the truth is the joy that's in my life. Now, joy has absolutely nothing to do with happiness. There's a lot of tragic things happening out there today. We only have to look at our own prayer WhatsApp to see tragedy, you know. But happiness and joy are two different things. And that brings us back to Philip. Look at Philip. This man, Philip, right, has just seen one of his best friends murdered, Stephen. Philip, only a few weeks before, him and Stephen had been called forward with five others, and the apostles had laid hands on them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Stephen went out then and preached the gospel, and he got killed for it. And then a great persecution broke out. So Philip has seen so much in recent days. He's seen his, one of his best friends killed. And when that scripture says, devout men mourned for Stephen, I think Philip probably was one of those people, you know. Then he saw Saul come and wreak havoc with his own family because he was going from church to church. Would that not have affected Philip's family? I'm sure it did, you know. And so the amazing thing is, why has Philip, in the midst of all his suffering and all this problem, why has Philip gone to Samaria? Why has he found it in his heart to preach the gospel at that time? You know, even Jesus' disciples, when they came into a big storm, they'd woke up Jesus and said, Don't you care? Is Philip not entitled after seeing Stephen killed and seeing his family put in... Is he not entitled to say, Lord, don't you care? Is he not entitled to be bitter? Is he not entitled to be consumed with his own problems? Is he not entitled to say, Don't mention the Samaritans to me. Can you not see I've got enough problems of my own? <laughs> but yet, I want to ask the question, Why does he go to Samaria? I think it's the most beautiful thing. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he began proclaiming Christ to them. Why does he do that? Because he has been filled with the Spirit, the life, the God who so loves people that he gives them his presence before they repent. That's who he is. The God who graces people with his presence before they've even repented. As he did with every person sitting here this morning. Because Paul said to the Corinthians, it is not possible for a man to say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Not possible. Jesus said, you will do nothing apart from me. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, you're saved by grace through faith, and that is not of yourselves. For this is love, not that we love God. But that he loved us. There were two disciples, Peter and John. One boasted of how much he loved God. One boasted of how much God loved him. Yeah. Only one was left standing at the cross. Yeah. That was John. You see, as Jesus said to Simon the Pharisee, it's not about her sins. It's about my forgiveness. It's about what I have done. It's about what I say. Praise God. Jesus is Lord, but no man can say that apart from the Holy Spirit. So here's the good news of the gospel. You're not saved by yourself. You're saved by Christ. Philip preached Christ. I'll say it again. You're not saved by yourself. You're, you're saved by Christ. But think of the implications of that. It means you're not saved by your life. You're saved by His. You're not saved by your righteousness. You're saved by His. You're not even saved by your faith. You're saved by the faith of the Son of God. That's what Paul wrote. It is no longer I who live. The life I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God. 
And how did he get that faith? It came by hearing. It came by hearing how good God was. Wow. If we could tell people just how good he is, faith would come for them to believe in a God that that's good. That good. A God who no longer is counting their sins against them. And when you actually believe that, something breaks out in your life called joy. And in your worst day, you'll be fine just giving thanks to God, saying, I will praise him. For how can I not? Because I believe. Oh, how do you believe? <coughs> My mother always says to me, oh, I wish I had your faith. And I always said to her, mom, I got it as a gift. Would you like some? Then let me tell you how good he is. I always say to people, please never tell me I need more faith. Give me that gospel. Give me more of that gospel. Because when you tell me the truth about what he has done, that he is no longer counting people's sins against them, but has reconciled them to himself, something like faith comes, you see? You see, men need to be born again, but the power to be born again is the very Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God and the Word of God are one. So give them the gospel and you give them the Spirit. You give them the ability to be born of God. Praise God. Uh, this is what Titus wrote, uh, Paul wrote to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age. What an amazing scripture. The grace of God has appeared teaching us. Who appeared teaching us? Jesus. You see? See, in God's mind, he doesn't separate grace from Jesus or even grace from spirit. God never separates his grace from his person. This is amazing. See, we have a God who isn't content to send us a message. He brings us himself. He says, my gift to you is me. <laughs> it's not even my gifts, it's me. That's the greatest gift. I give you my life. I share my life with you. You're my children, praise God. I declare that to you. Because in the declaration of that truth, there comes the power to be. The power to be. You see, the Bible says that God has reconciled the whole world to himself and is now no longer counting their sins against them. But then where to go and say, so now be who God has seen you to be. Be reconciled to God. But how can they be if they have never heard who they are? How can they believe? How can they be if they do not believe? And how can they believe if they do not hear? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? But how can we tell them if we don't even believe it ourselves? Oh, you know, the biggest reproach against the church is lack of joy. Lack of joy, you know. I had this, I had this funny idea once I was thinking about, why is it that so much the gospel seems to be so powerless? This gospel we preach that tells people if they'll only repent and believe, then God will do something for them. It's like I had this idea. There was a man once who lived on a hill, on a very steep hill, and one day he had a knock on the door. He watched a man approaching his house and this man was struggling to get up the hill and he was sweating and he finally got to the door and knocked on the door. And the man in the house opened the house and said, yep, what can I do for you? And the man says, I'm here to sell you an ability to fly. Guy goes, yeah, okay, bye. I just watched you climb that hill and you're here to tell me how to fly? I think that's what the world sometimes says to the church. Really? Joy? Really? Generosity? Really? You're not counting people's sins against them? Really? The church is the people who type people more than anybody else. The church is the people who believe that well, God is holding some people's sins against them. No, I mean, some people not, but some people yes. No, listen again. Did Jesus or did he not do what John the Baptist said he would do? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away Hallelujah. the sins of the world. Yes. Wow. 
See, this is what Philip went down to Samaria. Sometimes we look at the story and we say, oh, I wish we could see those miracles. I wish we could see the Spirit like that. You can't separate the Spirit from the Word. Preach what he preached and we'll see the Spirit that he saw. Preach this good news. Don't preach good advice. Preach good news. It's good news. He has reconciled the world to himself. He is now no longer counting their sins against them. But men must believe this. But how can they believe if nobody tells them? And I'm saying this to myself and I'm saying it to you because I don't think we've believed it to the magnificence and to the measure that God wants us to believe it. Because if we had, we wouldn't shut up about it. That's why Philip was in Samaria. He was shocked. You know, James says, rejoice in all sorts of trials and tribulations for, it's the, for the proving of your faith. It's not for the proving of your faith to God. It's to you and I. It's a bit like that time I fell off a boat and landed in the water and discovered that the life jacket actually held me up. What had happened? Falling in had proved the life jacket. So in your worst day, Philip had seen terrible things happen. And he says, my God, my joy hasn't gone. (laughs) This is true. They and what they do to me can no longer separate me from him because me and him are one. I'm going to tell people about this. And so off he goes to Samaria. I love this story. It's so beautiful. You know, because Samaria was the place where Jesus went, isn't it? Didn't he, didn't he give his life to that Samaritan woman at the well? And now, here come the disciples. Praise God. And what I wanted to say this morning is, Jews like Philip, you see, they'd spent their whole life counting Samaritan sins against them. That's what they'd done. You know what? The end of this passage, it says that Peter and John preached in Samaritan villages all the way home. Why didn't they preach in Samaritan villages all the way there? Because they couldn't even believe it themselves. God is not counting Samaritan sins against them. But they believed it when they saw what the Spirit did. They believed it when they saw the Holy Spirit freely given to such Samaritans, people like that. That's when they believed it. So we need to ask ourselves this morning a question, perhaps. Who have we for years held their sins against them? What individual or what community do you refuse to share a table with because you hold their sins against them? Now, this may be very hard for us to hear, but I think it's possible to spend years praying for God to send his spirit to revive his church and yet not see the power of God we desire to see because he's already sent his spirit in his word. But we have not been receiving his word for it doesn't agree with our traditions. For his word says, he has reconciled sinners to himself and is now no longer counting their sins against him. But our culture has always been to treat sinners like the Jews treated the Samaritans. They are the people that first need to repent. And once they do, then he will grace them with his presence and share our table and our fellowship with them. And time and time again, the gospel broke out of a little ghetto every time God shocked the life out of his apostles by who he would freely give his spirit to. Like Peter, a few months later, a few years later, and maybe he says, okay, maybe I believe now. Maybe I believe, okay, God's not counting the Samaritan sins against him, but not them Romans. (laughs) Not them Romans. And then he has a dream, and three times the Spirit of God says to him, stop calling unclean what I have cleansed. Stop telling people to do what I have already done. Praise God for his church hearing his word. So when we read this account of signs and wonders, the manifestations of God's spirit, and we say, I wonder why we don't see that anymore. 
Maybe because he cannot separate God's spirit from his word. And this is his word he has sent out into the world. I have reconciled them to myself. And I am no longer counting their sins against them. But God has given this message to us to proclaim, praise God. And as we've already seen, hire people to believe unless they hear. So the power of the Spirit is in the Word. Which Word? This Word. The Word Philip proclaimed. The Word Christ. God and man together. Philip went down into Samaria and he proclaimed Christ to them. It doesn't say he proclaimed a message about them to them. It doesn't say that he was proclaiming a message about what they needed to do for Christ. It doesn't say he was proclaiming a message about their obedience to Christ. He was proclaiming Christ. Your obedience to him is not your hope this morning. Your faith in him is not your hope this morning. Christ is your hope this morning. What he has done, he is your hope and no one else. For you're saved by grace through faith and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, I think it's amazing that later in this chapter... Peter and John go down there. And John is is the guy who stood with James in that same place two years earlier and said, Lord, will we call down fire on top of these Samaritans, these horrible people who you're against? (laughs) And Jesus said, John, James, you don't know what spirit you're of. (laughs) You You don't know the spirit of God. You don't know him in spirit and in truth. One day you will. One day you'll be filled with the Spirit of God. One day you'll be filled with the love of God. And you won't be able to stop yourself telling these people the good news. Praise God. If we want to be more persuaded that God has no problem showing up in the lives of people who we think are too sinful, all we have to do is start showing up in those people's lives ourselves, and I believe we'll be astonished at what the grace of God will do. Now, I'll say that once more because I'm going to finish by talking about what I believe God is doing right now, and this is it. Let me say it again. If we want to be more persuaded that God has no problem showing up in the lives of people who we think are too sinful, and I believe I need to be persuaded, and I believe you need to be more persuaded, then all we have to do is start showing up in those people's lives ourselves, and I believe we'll be astonished at what the grace of God will do. You know, I met, a, I met somebody recently, and uh, they had gone to um, a new city, and they were looking for a church. And I love what they said to me, you know. They've been looking around different churches, and they said, well, was this really good church? <clears throat> and, you know, and they had... Everything you can imagine, all resources and meetings and midweek meetings and Bible studies and home groups and then, 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 But I didn't want to join them. I said, why not? I said, because I'd have no life outside. I, I would never be able to have friends who weren't Christians. I'd be so busy in this little Christian subculture, I'd never get out. And I came here to meet new people. <laughs> I came here with a heart for the gospel. I came here because I want to share Christ's Praise God. Now, I'm not saying give up the assembling of yourselves together because you wouldn't even be getting this if you weren't here this morning. And neither would I. So, but this really is not the end in itself. This really is who we are, full of his spirit, that we may be with them and that they may be with us. And all we have to do is allow the spirit of God to fill us with his desire for them, his desire for them, you know. And, and, and that's why we preach the gospel, because the more we look at him and not look at how well we're doing, and that's why I never would stand here and say, you need to do this. <laughs> never. I, I always think it's crazy how sometimes we can have a course of 10 weeks to teach people how to share Christ. I, I never needed anybody to teach me how to share that Nicola was pregnant with our first child. Why not? 
It was good news. <laughs> Who needs to be taught how to share good news? If you're not sharing, it means you've misunderstood the good news, you know. Remember a, a few months ago, I preached about this guy who came to our house when we were small, selling the Encyclopedia Britannica. And it sounded the most amazing thing in the whole world. And we were all, as children, we said, Mom and Dad, you've got to change our lives. You've got to get this book, you know. And then he told the price of it, and it was like something astronomical. And I said, the poor man, that's the way we preach the gospel. We say, oh, we've got some great news for you, you know. But there's a wee catch, you know. Uh, you, you really got to try and repent better. You see what we've done? We've thrown them right back onto themselves. And at that, they hang their heads and they leave the church. May not leave it right away. Maybe a few months, maybe a few years. But at some point, if you don't lift the burden off their back, it'll kill them. It'll crush them. And God says, come to me, for my burden is easy. And my yoke is light. Praise God. Okay, let me finish. <laughs> I want to leave you with a challenge this morning. In light of the appearing of God's grace, the appearing of Christ, what are we to say to this question, who are you, Lord? I believe we can say he is the God who ate with us when nobody else would. He is the God who didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up before he shared his life with us, before he set his table before us. So I want to leave you with a challenge, and it's really a challenge that I'm praying about at the moment, and I want us all to do this right now. In light of all that God's Spirit has been showing us in recent years about his desire to eat with people, to share his life with them, how are we to better bear witness to that God in this generation? What would our lives look like together as a church if we were convinced that our God was a God who doesn't stand back from people, waiting for them to repent apart from his presence, but rather he is the God who wants them to know his presence, who wants to sit and eat with people, share his life with them, draw close to them, and love them, and let his presence, his grace, his generosity lead them to a total change of mind about who God is. What the Bible calls a metanoia, repentance. What would River City look like if we were a community that believed that grace comes before repentance, not after, who believed that the gospel hasn't changed in 2,000 years, that our generation needs to see that God is no longer counting their sins against them, but has reconciled them to himself. What would River City look like if we were a people who didn't believe that there were some groups or types of people that God is holding their sins against, and some he is not? but in fact that he's not counting anybody's sins against them anymore. Now make no mistake about this. Jesus said, you must be born again. But what would it look like if we were a community that believed that men and women are born again entirely of the Spirit of God and not by the strength of their repentance, and that that Spirit moves most powerfully when we proclaim to them that their efforts at trying to be good, religion, doesn't save them. Because it cannot do so and it does not need to do so. Because Hebrews 10, 12 says, God has already done himself through Jesus Christ. He has already made one single sacrifice for all sins forever. Amen. Do you believe? <laughs> and by the Spirit of God, people believe that. Isn't that amazing? It's almost too good to believe. But by the Spirit of God, people believe it. And the Spirit comes through the Word. Tell them. Tell them. You might be shocked how many people would believe you might be shocked that the Holy Spirit has been doing a great work in their life even before you got there. <laughs> Praise God. I have my own thoughts and convictions about how God is going to develop us in the months, maybe in the years to come. 
And for years, you know, I asked, 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 used to ask God a question. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Well, I've learned to ask a different question. I've learned to ask the question, what are you doing? Because <laughs> I just want to agree what you're doing. And I think as I look down, you know, and, and see these tables and all that he's brought us through in recent times, I think I can see what he's doing. He's saying to us, I don't want you to invite people to a lecture. I want you to invite them to a feast. Let your gatherings together not be about what people need to do for me, but a celebration of what I have done for all people. If in your generation you want to see heaven and earth, don't, don't start an appeal. Start a party. Start a feast and invite the whole world. If you want to come into agreement with heaven, then start celebrating what they're celebrating. That Christ has done what John the Baptist said he would do. He has taken away the sins of the world and reconciled the world to himself. And if you, the church, believe this and start to celebrate this, then I will inhabit your praises, your feasts, in such a way that people coming into your gathering will think they have come into a taste of heaven and they will taste and see that the Lord is good. Good enough to invite them to share in his table, his fellowship, his life. And that taste that taste of his life will taste to them like coming home. And they will eat their way into the kingdom of God. And that brings us to this table. Praise God. Get your emblems out. We're going to eat together. We're going to drink together. We're going to receive the word this morning. For that is what this table has always proclaimed to us. He is the God who ate with us when nobody else would. Can you say amen this morning? Is that not the reason we're going to sing his praises forever and ever and ever? He is the God who ate with us when nobody else would. He is the God who didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up before he shared his life with us. Because he sat at a table with us. He's the God who says, I set a table for you in the presence of your enemies. In the presence of all your problems. In the presence of all your accusers. In the presence of all those voices who say, you... You, how could God eat with you? Look at the sin in your life. In the presence of all your accusers, I say a table. I set a table for you and I invite you to come to the table. And that's what Jesus did for us. And so that's what this table proclaims. It proclaims, haven't we got a good father? Haven't we got a good God who has done something about all the things that's bothering us in our life, you know? And so when we eat and drink this morning, what we're doing is we're saying, Lord, we're receiving this word. I do believe, help my unbelief, that I have been cleansed by your blood. That, Lord, you have done a remarkable thing across the whole world. You have reconciled this world to yourself. You're no longer counting their sins against them. But, Father, absolutely by your Spirit, convince me of this in such a way that my life becomes so full of thanksgiving that that thanksgiving, that wave of thanksgiving, washes out every bit of fear, every bit of doubt, every bit of reproach, every bit of unforgiveness, every bit of accusation. That when I look in people... I can see them as you see them. Yes. The apple of your eye. The ones that you've always been dying to be with. Yes. And that's what this table <coughs> proclaims. He's dying to be with this generation. Praise God. And we thank God that we know that by his spirit. Let's eat and drink together. We're drinking healing this morning to our bodies, to our families. We think this morning of Ian, of um, Elizabeth's nephew in a hospital this morning, who's in a coma. And we declare life over Ian this morning. We say, Ian, you wake up in the mighty name of Jesus. We, the Lord loves you, Ian. Father, I just thank you for Ian encountering your spirit this morning. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. We remember Angela Roddy this morning as well. John mentioned that she hasn't been so good this week. So we bless Angela in the mighty name of Jesus. 
praise God. Kieran's not feeling too well this morning too, so we lift up Kieran before the Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that your work on the cross is sufficient for every need represented in this house this morning. Every need, we thank you, has been dealt with. So we can give thanks this morning in Jesus' name. Let's eat and drink together. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know what? I have always, and this is off my notes now, I have always hesitated in putting before you a vision. I know it's easier sometimes to build a church. If I put up a big thing here, it says, listen, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and we're going to do the other. So get with it. Come on, try a little bit harder, and we can do all these things. And then wouldn't we be great? If we did all these things. I never want to do that. Because if we think doing all these things are going to make us great, we haven't heard the gospel. <laughs> I remember once we had a joint meeting across the city. And I remember the Lord said to me, tell these people that what they do for me in this city will not be the greatest thing in this city. The greatest thing in this city is them, is what I have done. That's the greatest thing in this city. Praise God. Five past twelve. My vision is out working day by day, you know. That's why I hesitate to say things. I, I don't want to put God in a box. I believe what he desires to do is more, who can finish the verse? More than we've asked or imagined. Exceedingly abundantly, you know. So I don't want to really live past the day I'm in. I don't want to live believing there's a better day coming. This is the best day of your life, Marguerite. Amen. This is the best day of your life. You see, we can live believing that this is the best day ever. If we can live believing that God is not holding a thing against us, and we are, as it were, standing in heaven, people will be absolutely changed by being around people like that, you know? So, what that looks like in terms of a feast, I think, in my heart, is that this hasn't happened by accident. I don't believe, I don't want to go back. I want to keep going forward. I don't want to rely on previous traditions or methods. I never want us to rely on a method. We are people who hear the voice of the Spirit. So let's hear the voice of the Spirit about what God wants to do right now. I love the fact that we're around tables. You know, I read somebody said something uh, about a year ago, said the next move of God will not appear, will not happen around platforms. It'll happen around tables in people's homes, you know. I love the idea that people can come in here and have a meal together and eat together, you know. You know, uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, I hear that at the communion table, at your love feast, people are getting drunk. Is anybody drunk in here this morning? You know why you're not drunk? You haven't been here long enough. <laughs> and we're only giving out juice. <laughs> that meant that they were there a good while, eating and drinking together. Some weren't even waiting for each other, you know. So I just wonder perhaps, if maybe for the first hour we can worship together and preach the word of God and declare the Spirit and then sit down and eat together for the second hour and release the body of Christ, release the Spirit of God just in the fellowship of the people. And that's my vision even for this place, you know, that it would be a place where anybody, anybody, anybody can walk in and eat and experience the presence of God and taste and see that the Lord is good. And here's something that will change their view of God forever. So that repentance may come to this generation. Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay. Talk too long this morning. Bless you. Have some fellowship together. Praise God. And we'll see you next Sunday.